Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast. I am so excited for today's guest, Keith Gargiulo. He is a mentor of mine, a friend, and someone who I deeply value insights from when it comes to all things digital transformation, technology, uh, and entrepreneurship. Keith, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you again for joining me. I'll kick off the conversation by asking you to introduce yourself through the lens of who is Keith in 2020? What are you working on? What are you passionate about? What are you excited about? Uh, And where do you see this year and say the next two or three years taking you? Thank you, Max, for having me on. I'm very glad to be here and uh, definitely value you as a friend and appreciate this opportunity to talk. 2020 is a year that I don't think anybody bet on or anticipated in the way things have shaken out so far. I hope that most people have been able to see it as the opportunity that it represents and not just the real tragedy that has happened during this year. Uh, But from a personal and business point of view, many, many things are possible at a faster pace than they ever would have been uh, because of COVID, specifically because of COVID. There's a great number of things that happen in in the technology field that are trends that were always going to come. There was was a, a bit of inevitability about them, but the pace at which they started to accelerate because of the whole world having to face and tackle a single problem at a single time and are still facing and tackling it different degrees of success, that window of opportunity caused a shift in people. It caused people to jump ahead, maybe even years, on a, on a trajectory of the, you know, this somewhat of a buzzword. If you use the term digital transformation here, you could call it Industry 4.0. In, in a manufacturing sense, you could call it China 2025. If, if you're in China, there's a lot of terms for that same idea. Uh, that really got accelerated by by the impact of COVID on on business, on education, on personal lives and families, on medicine. You know, there's probably no shortage of industries and verticals we could go through that where you could come up with what that accelerant impact has been. Now, for me, in my uh, number number of irons in the fire, in my uh, kind of corporate job that I have with Parametric Technology Corporation. Sorry, that's PTC. We legally changed our name. I shouldn't really refer to it by the old name. So that'll need some editing. My uh, corporate job with PTC, very focused on the idea of digital transformation and discrete manufacturing and uh, some hybrid manufacturing, a little bit of process industry as well. It has been a nonstop velocity increase from all of the verticals that we deal with, uh, manufacturing in the field service areas, uh, talking about how all of these technologies that are converging in new and unexplored ways can actually be a benefit to them. And I, I think one of the shifts that has been most prevalent for me to see is that for years, it's been very, very easy to just start a little project doing some IoT exploration, some augmented reality exploration, some uh, factory automation. It's the bar to entry to those sorts of things is very low, almost embarrassing low, embarrassingly low if your company hasn't actually dipped your toe in yet and started to try to explore some of those things. But the challenge in the past few years has been it's been so easy, so low cost of entry, that the work that's happened has gone on at a level, at a department level, at an organization level, at an individual team level, even with individuals just exploring something because they felt it to be interesting and compelling, but unconnected to things happening in the executive leadership strategy and value definition. So those pilot programs that got started 
generally fell into what we call pilot purgatory. They would succeed, prove everything that they were expected to prove, and go nowhere, which is not typically what you see when a pilot program succeeds. You expect expansion and growth and, and adoption around the company. However, it was that, that lack of connection between what, what's the value of this digital technology that I'm trying to deploy and, it, and its success and its practical application caused those things to just sit in purgatory and go nowhere. The change we've seen, the change I've definitely seen, is companies maturing to the point where they know to ask those questions early and take advice about asking those questions early rather than just jumping into the technology uh, because it's cool because it's flashy and the next whiz-bang thing. Um, they really are flashy whiz-bang things with which you can do amazing things that were unimaginable even a couple of years ago. And that's off-the-shelf technology today, not even bleeding edge. Uh, however, it's never going to get to scale at a, at a manufacturer unless you can have, have that connection with the, the CXO level where they're, it's part of their strategy and they see it, how it's a compelling aspect to improve the business. And that the ability to make those connections from companies uh, and consultancies and software firms and hardware developers and the will to spend the effort and time to make the connection improve the value before you dive into the technology has really started to evolve in a lot of companies. Very interesting. And, and one, one area that I, I'll table for a few minutes from now um, that I'm interested in hearing your perspective on is, is in addition to helping companies connect top-level strategists with, with frontline innovators. Um, I'm really interested in learning how new innovators who are building new companies can go about designing their entities, designing their projects around digital transformation from the get-go, from the ground up. Um, before we get there, though, I'd love to, to understand a little bit more about how you view digital transformation. So maybe if we were to keep it stupid simple and explain it to me like I am a five-year-old, um, how, how would you explain digital transformation and the, and the landscape the lingo of digital transformation and the sure. technologies involved. The, the well, maybe not for a five-year-old, but I, use, I like to start with a history lesson. <laughs> and the history lesson is making the point that we've done this before. We didn't call it digital transformation, but when we had an industrial revolution a hundred years ago, different timeframes for different parts of the world, but about a hundred years ago, that was essentially the same sort of emotional and technological change that we're going through now. The emotions are actually very much the same. The disruption is very much the same. The technologies evolved 100 years later. Many, many, many doublings of increases in our capabilities have happened since then. So the, the impact comes faster, and the gap between where we used to be and where we're going gets bigger in a shorter time. But we've been through this before. Every time there's been a technological advance of any kind, it feels the same. We happen to have so many different kinds of technologies converging on each other at the same time, each independent, independently very much advanced over our past human history, and together working in ways that people haven't anticipated before, that the impact's coming, it really feels different this time. And there's, there's a reality to that. I'm not trying to, un, to uh, take any of that away. Um, if you look at the, the Teamsters Union, the Teamsters Union logo is two horse heads in a horseshoe. And that's because 100 years ago, Teamsters drove teams of horses. That's where they come from. Now they drive trucks. And what's going to happen when trucks are automated to people who are in Teamsters Union? That, that's a real impact to lots and lots of people who in the United States are very critical to the economy. You know, the U.S. economy shuts down in about three days without truckers. That's pretty much about the 
the level of, of impact that, that that would have. And over the next 10 or 15 years, as trucking fundamentally transforms, what does that mean to, to people is something that I really like to spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think I know a lot of people in the industry uh, think about that. And I've gotten a little bit off track from, from dumbing it down for you there. <laughs> so I do want to come back to your original question. Digital transformation is just the current version of people getting better at living. Every, all of human history is us moving from very difficult, very short, very hard lives towards lives that last longer with greater degrees of health, more degrees of uh, leisure time, more disposable income, more opportunities to use that income on to have uh, families grow and entertain themselves. And generally with less of our time having to be proportioned to work and certainly less of it proportioned to difficult, dangerous, deadly work. That's the trajectory of people. And it's gone in fits and starts, but generally always been, if you zoom out far enough on human history, it looks like a pretty good curve. And this is digital transformation is the next way that people get better at living, becoming more connected to each other, even though it feels like we become less connected to each other with technology sometime. Uh, that is a short, and it's real in some ways, but it's a short, I believe it's a short term impact of what's going to be happening. The ultimate outcome of this is possibly more connectivity to other people than you even want, and you have to turn some of it off. Uh, certainly more connectivity to industry, to uh, commercial activities, uh, you know, shopping, things that people want and need in their lives. The degree to which that will become easy to do, even anticipated, before you even know you need something from, say, an application of an AI. Uh, that's all 10 to 15 year kind of time frame that we're looking at. And it's, I really do think about digital transformation as that progression of making human life easier and better. And, and with that, we hear a lot of buzzwords associated with digital transformation. So I, I guess my, my next question was, so, so bringing it from five-year-old explanation level to, to maybe 15-year-old explanation level, could we, could we decode some of the buzzwords and then how those buzzwords, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, internet of things, generative design, sure. computer-aided design, how these all interact, connect, and how the young innovator, the innovator might take advantage, advantage of them as they're building new projects in the next few years. Sure, well, let's start with digital transformation. Digital is the part of that term that actually has some real meaning. It fundamentally means that you have moved a process, a tool, a manufacturing operation, a design off of paper and out of hand-to-hand -hand or purely verbal or visual communication into a digital format. It, uh, so this would be a reference back to Peter Diamandis and the 60s of transformation. The first one is digitization. It is unavoidable. When, and you will not be able to have a transformation in a, in a long-standing existing business unless you digitize. And the, the extent to which you can, for, can transform is only gated by your willingness to digitize. Once things are digital, 
you can take advantage of transformation. Now, transformation is where that term gets really fuzzy because it can mean anything you want it to mean. And that's where that comment I made earlier about connecting it to value is what has to come first. Digital transformation in a manufacturer might mean that they have 100 factories, every factory's got 50 lines, they fundamentally don't understand where their bottlenecks are in their factories. They, they can do a continuous op improvement process and kind of peanut butter their effort over all those lines and make all of them a little bit better, but they don't really know which operation and which line and which plants is, is gating their, their overall efficiency. A, an a digital transformation approach could let a company like that actually know in real time where their bottlenecks are so they could focus all their improvement efforts on that, track what has happened, how it's gotten better, and know when something else has become the new bottleneck in their factory. Today, that is an entirely, almost entirely manual effort. There are a few places where there are some point solutions that can try to help with that, but there's no enterprise solution that solves that kind of problem for a factory, certainly not at scale. Um, you can spend millions of dollars on one-off consulting efforts that show you for a factory or for a line where it is right now, and then you go tackle that problem, and as soon as you've tackled it, you don't know anymore. Uh, so that's, an ex that's a digital transformation that could have real value to all manufacturers that is possible with technology today. So I guess I guess with that, with with the decoding, maybe that's a good place to lead into Internet of Things, which which people might associate with. Hey, I'm going to have a connected factory, which is another one of these buzzwords. Um, and can you maybe decode how Internet of Things plays into this, into the larger scheme of things, sure. and the ability to point, collect data, process that data, etc. Yep. So first thing I'll do is expand a little bit. Uh, Internet of Things certainly does, and often frequently does, mean con connected to physical objects that are reporting some data about their existence, their operation, their, their state of repair, uh, their, any, anything you can put a sensor on, on a physical object can be something that reports. And as long as that sensor can be connected to a device cloud, meaning it has an internet connection and can speak to something that's ready to receive its data and pool it, that's a connected device. It can be a medical device, it can be a backhoe, it doesn't matter. Anything, it can be your car, uh, many cars are, uh, any physical device that has the ability to send its sensor data to a cloud where you can operate on that data, display that data, analyze that data, and control the device is, is an Internet of Things application. The expansion on that is it's not limited to physical objects. If you have a repository of weather data and you connect that to, and you mash it up, that data up with something that's coming from a device that's operating in the field, you might be able to see something about where to uh, pre-locate some information, some devices to uh, run your run your business, because you've been able to predict the weather and a certain and certain traffic patterns. Anything that is digital data, whether it's from a physical object or stored in a database or anywhere else you care to get it from, is something that is input information to an Internet of Things application. And Internet of Things. When you, when you actually make that concept usable for people, you're making a application of some kind. It might be visible on your screen, it might be visible on your mobile device, it might be visible with augmented reality. And this is actually, I'll bring in a, a buzz term that you didn't mention, which is digital twin. Uh, that ah, floats around in the industry a lot. One. So concept on that is, is the idea of twin is actually pretty fundamentally important there. You've got a physical thing, and it's electronic digital twin. 
And they have to talk to each other, in my view, or you don't actually have that twin. The physical thing will be out in the field operating, doing something, generating data with its sensors. That data, that data will go to a device cloud and it will come down and be represented in real time on the digital representation. So in CAD, you mentioned CAD before, so maybe you've got a CAD model of an excavator and the excavator is actually operating in the field or in test because it's a new design and you're reading forces, loads, motion, anything you care to sense about it, fuel state, battery level, uh, temperatures, pressures, all of that can be fed back and you can watch it on the CAD digital representation in real time. And there's the only limit to that on the technological front is what you put a sensor on. And the, the real priority you should put on things is what adds value to your business. Otherwise, you've just done one of those proof of concepts to show it's possible and it's really cool, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't move the needle for anyone. So again, keep that connection to value in mind about where you, what you should connect and why you want to. And doing the connection is an exercise in, in some technology that is not bleeding edge anymore. So that digital twin has to work both ways. Another way to do a digital twin, uh, this would be bringing in augmented reality to the picture now with another buzz term. Uh, Thank the, you very much for covering if, it. If you look at the physical object that has those sensors that's feeding that very same device data up to the device cloud and you put on a HoloLens 2 or you look at it with your tablet or pick, pick magically pick any augmented reality device that you want to choose, you, will, you can see that data digitally decorated around the actual physical object in real time, and you can operate on it. You can operate it on it whether you're back at the mashup or the CAD station looking at the data in digital only. You can operate on it whether when you're there with the physical object. You can be guided about how to do a repair procedure. You can be guided about how to learn. You can be trained on it, how to learn or operate it. You can be trained on how to uh, assemble something in a factory. All of that can be done with those technologies. So those are the applications of it. And augmented reality, people who watch sports have been, deal have been seeing augmented reality for years and years and years. If you uh, watch a race, and, and an, auto an automobile race, and you're seeing on the screen the RPMs or the brake temperature of the driver decorated in a little bubble as the car drives around, that's augmented reality on your TV screen. If you watch uh, yacht racing, they'll often have the, the wind, the knots, and all sorts of other statics, stats about the, the race itself decorated against the boat. That's augmented reality. If you watch American football and there's a first down line on your screen, that's augmented reality in very, very simple ways that's been around for years uh, that have just you know, crept into people's way of working and not really been called augmented reality or called out as augmented reality, but it's the same thing. That's so, so there's one tool that I think might be worth mentioning here that, that if you have not yet had the experience to, to play around with augmented reality and haven't had your mind blown by it yet, I think if I, if I recall, PTC has a free version of Euphoria View, which we'll link to in the show notes, where you can just plop some, some CAD models into, into your living room on your iPhone and you can walk around it and you're just, there's a boat in the middle of your living room and it's pretty freaking cool. Uh, so I thought I, I thought I might plug that. I appreciate um, that. There's a, there's a couple examples I'll, I'll expand on there also since in the vein of free. Uh, we've been giving away Euphoria Chalk during the COVID crisis because it's a augmented reality tool that helps people do things remotely. So because it's difficult to be physically in, in person with people, especially when things are very locked down, uh, a expert might not be able to get to where the problem was that they needed to solve. But someone was there 
some person who might be a, an intelligent novice, for example, so capable of following instructions, but isn't an expert in a repair procedure or a maintenance procedure for some object, uh, the expert can essentially have what amounts to a video call with the person. And as they're showing them how to do the work, the expert is marking up on their screen what button to push, what knob to turn, what to remove, uh, and as many augmented, and those instructions show up for the novice, the person who's being instructed, and they're smart. They're tagged. If I told you to undo this bolt and I circled the bolt on my screen, no matter where you went as the person on site, that bolt would stay circled. It's, and it, if you went off screen, it would tell you, hey, back, go back this way. This is where your screen is. And we've, we've been giving that away during COVID and have had, despite the fact that we're giving it away, have had more interest in it and more actual business around it than you know, at any time previously because it is so relevant in, in this kind of world. And the, the, the View app is another version of the Euphoria app that you mentioned. It's a, a way of seeing things that have been published in augmented reality. Anything from very basic things, like you said, we, could, we give examples of boats and motorcycles that you can plop down in your, in your living room, scale to whatever size you want, you know, walk through them. It, it's, a, it's not just a picture of the outside. You walk around. It's true 3D representation, including all the internals. Uh, so that's and that's a choice you make when you create an AR experience. You decide how much detail and how you want that experience to look. So there's one one area that's really interesting with digital transformation. A lot of times I'll talk to to people who are looking to start new projects in tech. They're looking to incorporate augmented reality into their into their project. They're looking to incorporate CAD and in, in CAD and, and advanced generative design, which we'll get to the next section I imagine when they're into their projects and they say to me, it's too expensive. The hardware is too expensive. I don't know where I would go to get a hollow lens right now. I can't, I, I have no access to a magic leap. I, I can't, I can't incorporate augmented reality into my project. And then I noticed that there's an interesting phenomenon happening when I went to buy my new, newest iPhone. It now has three cameras on it. Um, and upon my research, I, I learned that it was because of something called Apple AR kit. Uh, and I, and I've learned that, every cell phone can now function as a really high fidelity and really high quality AR device. Could you explain a little bit about how hardware is evolving and how, even though this tech seems like it should be really expensive and really hard to Im implement, it's not, it's not just the software that's become digitized and is becoming demonetized. Um, but some of the hardware and the higher capital intensive uh, costs or pro or parts of the project are also being coming digitized and demonetized. Sure. So it, it's, it's fair to recognize that hardware has been a challenge. It's you know, people who have felt like that's a tripping stone for them aren't completely off base at all that it, the software did get ahead of the hardware for a while and maybe even arguably still is. Uh, you know, if you want to put on a HoloLens 2, um, even its inventor would tell you it's not something you wear for an eight hour shift. And he has told me that, <laughs> so and it is. But it is a dramatically improved piece of hardware for Hololens One. You know, P PTC was in, on stage introducing Hololens Two, uh, you know, with with Microsoft. So we we do a lot of work with the Hololens Two. There are some amazing things you can do with it. Um, but the hardware isn't at a place yet where necessarily a a line worker would wear something for eight hours and be and feel completely comfortable. Um, some of it's a safety aspect. You can't wear a hard hat while you're also wearing uh, HoloLens too. Uh, you know, uh, companies like Realware have in some integrated projection information that we work with for also, uh, which is integrated from a safety point of view, say in a factory or somewhere where you need to wear a hard hat or other safety equipment. Uh, but that, that's one of the ways that hardware still needs uh, to do some work. 
if you pick any of the head-mounted devices that are out there, Google Glass 2, um, Meta, you know, I was in a bit of a meta state <laughs> at the moment, uh, you know, Magic Leap or HoloLens and others, you know, lots of others that are in some state of development. They're all making tremendous progress and they're, they're all very usable for task-based orientation right now. You can also use, like you mentioned, a, a phone, it, you know, tablets, phones, they all have the ability to do it. It's AR Kit is the operating system component in Apple, AR Core in Android. Uh, so the, the apps you mentioned from before, yeah, they run on phones that have those things. We do rely on the operating system to be catching up with us too. Um, so there's a ton of progress. Um, I, I expect to see a lot more from Apple too, and it, w it certainly won't slow down on Android. You know, on my Samsung phone, I can draw AR over people's pictures. It's part. It's just part of the operating system. Uh, those things are starting to come along. It's going Pokemon Go. Everyone uses that reference at some point. It did a lot to put this kind of idea into people's consciousness as something they enjoy working with and isn't something to be afraid of. Um, but yeah, that that's not not ancient history at this point, but it, it's kind of an old reference now. <laughs> yeah, people have gotten, uh, they've made the mental change, the mental leap over, you know, AR something I can use in my life. Uh, the hardware is very good for uh, the uh, for the ability to perform task-based operations, especially if it's something you can you can do uh, and work with on a flat screen. If you need location information, so for example, your job is to move around a factory and follow a certain uh, series of steps in a work cell or down a line, the only thing that can do the location information with that level of fidelity is HoloLens 2. And you know, we, we have uh, apps that, uh, something called expert capture, which uh, one of the problems going on in industry, basically worldwide in basically every vertical, is there's a gap between lots of older experts who are getting closer to retirement and lots of younger people coming in the workforce that simply don't have those 20, 30 years of experience under their belt. Uh, expert capture is a way for the people who have the expertise to simply do their job and record it with AR text video and it becomes training. It becomes augmented reality enabled training for the younger people that then they can, all of that knowledge that has been built up in the experts when they retire doesn't simply walk out the door of the company. Well, thank you for breaking that down for us. I think it's, it's important that we talk about how this tech isn't only here, but it's also accessible to the 18 year old working out of their makerspace at their university who might sure. not have access to a HoloLens or even out of their dorm room or living in your parents' basement, you know, like some of us are during COVID. Um, thank there's, you, COVID. Uh, there's examples of that, other examples of that in AR too. If it, this is actually PTC standard business model with Vuforia uh, Studio, which is a way to create, that's the tool you use to create AR experiences. That doesn't cost anything until you want to publish it. It's, you, use, if you use Studio, you can make as many experiences as you want just to get used to it. And then when you find something that has value for you and you want to actually publish it and use it, that's when there's a commercial arrangement. So there's, and that's, that's not a special, that's not a COVID inspired thing. That's simply the way we run that business. It's amazing. And I'm glad to see the hardware is finally catching up. Um, another place that I think the hardware is catching up with the incredible, seriously incredible um, um, technology is in the generative design and computer aided design space. I did a podcast about two years ago with a friend of mine named uh, Vlad Boryakov. He was doing his master's degree at Wisconsin at the time, uh, focusing specifically on generative design, running generative design algorithms on Wisconsin's uh, supercomputer cluster. 
Could you talk a little bit about what generative design is, how that plays into kind of the engineering 4.0, let's call it the sure. design chain, um, and how the design side of things and actually taking an idea you have in your brain and bringing it into reality is transforming, becoming digitized, becoming demonetized? Sure. Uh, generative design is a fundamentally different way to think about what a product or physical object that you're trying to design should look like. If I asked you now to, to tell me what a chair looks like, and if I asked a hundred or a thousand other people to tell me what a chair looks like, more or less, they would all say the same thing. It's got something flat that I put myself down on. It's got some structure to hold it off the ground. It's got a back to hold my back up, maybe some armrests. A thousand out of a thousand times, the descriptions would all sound like that. Jet and, and if I ask an engineer to design me a chair, nearly a thousand out of a thousand times, it's going to look something like that. And the greatest variation is going to come from the industrial design department, not from the fundamental engineering of what the chair of how the chairs form and function, how the chairs function operates. Generative design is a different approach that takes advantage of computational power that's never existed until recently. Generative design is more of saying, I want an outcome. The outcome being, I need to hold myself off the ground and I need to be about this high off the ground, and I want, I want something to lean on, and I want something to hold my arms up. And you give the computer those parameters, those constraints, and any other boundary conditions that you want to apply. Uh, maybe it has to fit inside a certain space, uh, it has to weigh something, it can be made of certain materials, you can, you can, it can be manufactured in certain ways or not in certain ways, um, and then you let the computer decide given those parameters, maybe I want to optimize for weight or cost. What, what should it look like? And the, a chair can look very different when a computer comes up with things limited only by those constraints and seeking an outcome than what it looks like with a human with 100,000 years of sitting on chairs, well, maybe less than that, 2,000 years of sitting on chairs in our history, all in our brains, and we know what a chair should look like before we start. Computers don't know that. Computers just know the outcome. And generative design are the algorithms and the computational power, uh, typically in GPUs, that are used to generate, to take those starting conditions and the boundary conditions and the optimization goals and come up with design options, tens, hundreds, thousands of possible design options. And the ability to link that with your potential manufacturing processes, whether it'll be additive, subtractive, formative, which basically covers every way you can make something right now, uh, that's another powerful tool that you can link in with this process to say, I want to build this, but I don't have, for some reason, I don't have any additive manufacturing capability. I'm going to make this out of just making chips on steel on a lathe. That, that's a constraint that's important for a generative design system to understand because it won't design something that you would have to 3D print. Design for manufacturability is extremely important. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a good a good place to end this segment on. Uh, so I guess we'll, we'll end this, this part, this part of the conversation and we'll move over to some more, more innovator focused, tangible ways that people can start deploying these technologies and, and using some of these resources in their own lives. Um, could you break down for us the process of taking this generative thing that you generatively designed and actually turning it into an, an additively manufactured or, or otherwise manufactured component and how that space is also changing as a result of some of the work you're doing at PTC um, and others might be doing around around the world. Sure. Well, additive is certainly an example of an exponential curve. It's been around for, I, I don't know the dates, 50, 60 years. Uh, and it's 
in that in that knee of the curve where it's moved beyond a specialty beyond it for a while it was rapid prototyping that yeah, everything added it was simply rapid prototyping we're going to make one of these it's really expensive laser uv system and i got it but i got it faster than i could have otherwise machined it so that's fantastic but i'm there's, there was never any concept of doing things at scale or certainly not for production parts we've now moved into where it's very if i if i go buy a 3d printer for a first robotics team chances are half that printer was 3d printed by its by its predecessor 3d printer <laughs> and the idea of production scale out of uh out of parts out of 3d printed parts is becoming not the norm yet but it's heading towards the norm uh, not very long ago porsche just did its first set of additively manufactured pistons and I don't know the numbers, but I'm willing to bet that set of six or eight pistons was much more expensive to make those six or eight than their cast or forged partners would have been from hundreds of years of practice. However, when you get pistons that have integrated cooling that are 10 or 15% lighter, the secondary and tertiary effects and all the other benefits in the entire powertrain and the entire vehicle performance, the price performance improvement you get out of that for the whole system is staggering. And that's not even taking in the fact that once you actually perfect those and can do it at scale, the unit costs come down too. So there's, uh, in, in every vertical domain, there's, a, there's a, a look towards the combination of generative and uh, added manufacturing and how that's shifting, what design, what products should even look like or what they can look like. Uh, the uh, human, there are certain limits on what humans can model that have, and I don't mean uh, software limitations. Human brains can't model, physically can't model the surfaces that a generative design will come up with to optimize weight for a load bearing structure in an aircraft or in an automobile. And if you take the, the human versions of brackets and things, simple things like brackets, and uh, the amount of money you save when you take a pound of weight out of anything that flies, whether it's in the air or in space, that's things that people solve by making it lighter, cut drilling holes in it, and testing it till it fails and seeing if it's strong enough yet. Computers can do all that at once and come up with a shape that you could never model by hand, but you can additively manufacture. And you know, the, the advances in single and multi-material uh, added manufacturing, particularly with powdered-centered metals, uh, with and, and with multi-materials, and with the idea of uh, parts assemblies become the part. This is a, a, there's not necessarily an industry term for this yet, uh, but system on a part maybe would be a way to describe it. Uh, I think GE did this. Forgive me if I get the company reference wrong. Uh, and and a long time ago, they did a 3D printed jet engine not necessarily fully functional, but all the parts uh, to scale. And there were something like 12 parts uh, out of hundreds or thousands. And, and it had the same function, but when you can fundamentally think about what a part means differently than you used to, because before it was limited by your human capacity and maybe your manufacturing capability and the materials that you had to have included. And as soon as you got into something that was made out of brass and aluminum, forget it, it's two different parts. Well, maybe you can print someday brass and aluminum parts together, and it, or you don't, or because you can redesign it, you don't need it to be two different materials anymore. Uh, that's that sort of change is all wrapped up in the idea of generative design. Um, some things that aren't you know, the ability to, with the computational power that exists in real time, 
as you're changing your design, whether you're doing it by hand or with generative, to watch the stress analysis or the heat transfer analysis or what a mold, what the flow in a plastic injection mold would look like based on the way you change your partner. You can have any voids or problems with that. All of that can also be done in real time, which is both some software that exists to do it, plus the, the computational power that exists in GPUs now that even a few years ago was insufficient. So much for people to think about when they are going and they're trying to implement these technologies at whatever project they're building, whatever company they're building. Uh, we worked on, on, on one attempt at a use case for this when we were working with Wisconsin Space Race, and, and there's so much to think about. So I, I would love it if you could go back to an earlier question that I had, um, which, which we said we would table for later. How can the, the young person at the start of their career take a manageable bite off of this exponential change in digital transformation um, well, well and wealth of information? How can they take a manageable bite as they're starting their company, as they're starting their project? And I'll, and I'll qualify that by also saying, I would imagine that it's not the technology is not necessarily there yet that off the bat, a young entrepreneur starting their first company can just go and implement everything at once uh, for low cost. I imagine that there's still some cost prohibitions, but within the next five to 10 years, those will dramatically come down and you'll be able to fully design an organization from the ground up around these technologies. How, how should a young person start to think about that? How should anyone starting a company start to think about that and design their organization to readily accept, adopt, and implement these really powerful tools that are going to define the next, say, century to, to century, century plus? So the first thing I would say is don't emulate an old school country that an old school company that hasn't actually done it yet. <laughs> so if you uh, went to an internship at a, at a, kind of old school discrete manufacturing company and they haven't adopted these ideas, there's a lot of things you probably learned that'll be very useful to you at that internship, but how to do digital transformation isn't it. <laughs> so, you know, cho choose your, choose your mentors, choose your mentors yeah. wisely. And you know, to some degree, if you're in your twenties, whatever age you are starting up a company, you're not really doing digital transformation. You don't have anything to transform from. This is just the way it will be for you. The options to do it, quote unquote, old ways, are simply going to become less and less practical. Eventually, they'll become less and less available at all. Uh, so if you're getting started now, it's more naturally in your instinct because of what you've read, what you've seen in the news, what you've paid attention to uh, as in your path towards uh, trying to build up an industry or become an entrepreneur. These, these things are in your DNA already. So you're more naturally attuned to just want the information. When you want the information, it's the way you start to build your company. And one of, one of the things that's used a limiting factor for people just getting started in a business is money. One of the cheaper ways to get access to things is through SaaS. And I would say in general, manufacturing as a whole is later to the game in SaaS than many other industries. Uh, I think a lot of, but however, especially shown during COVID, a lot of things PTC does have been way ahead of the game in that manufacturing domain that isn't necessarily first on, in the line in SaaS. We have many customers who have cloud solutions from us that had no disruption in their ability to run their engineering departments because they could do it from anywhere. They did not have to be tied to a, a particular piece of software that lived on a computer in a building that was now closed. 
Uh, so, and that would be whether you're doing design, whether you're managing your data, whether you're running augmented reality experiences, uh, doing parts classification, all of those things can be run on SAS, all those things you need to do to run at scale. Um, but you don't necessarily need all of that when you're just getting started. So even the basic things can run on, you know, on SAS. If you want to get started doing CAD and you don't want to be limited by having to go to an office where there's a license of some piece of CAD installed, then you use Onshape. And you can be logged into Onshape running SAS with a fully functional CAD system in about five or six minutes. You will never spend a minute on licensing other than paying your subscription fee. And actually, if you do it for education, it's free immediately. It's free. You can, you can get a free version of Onshape running in a URL, in your web browser, on any computer, anytime in just minutes. And that's the example of the power of SaaS in manufacturing. So if somebody wants to get started and understand what kind of technology that is going to help them from a financial perspective and from a business flexibility and risk management perspective, they have to look at what they can do in the domain of SaaS. It's, it's unavoidable now. So that's interesting because I, as a as a millennial borderline Gen Zer, it's it's really interesting to hear about the dichotomy between SaaS versus not SaaS. Because in my mind, everything's just SaaS. It's all instantaneous. I for whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the web. The, I'm going to go to a web browser, or if I have to, if I have to, God forbid, download an app onto my computer. Um, <laughs> it, I know that it's it's not going to work unless I have an internet connection. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear that that shift is That's, still in, in flux, especially in manufacturing and engineering. Oh, it, it's, sig it's significantly early for most industry to be moving wholesale over to SaaS. Um, and it's, I mean, there's hundred, we have hundreds of clients that run on cloud, run on the cloud and they don't have any local installs. Um, but even that, you know, there's degrees of SaaS. If you, uh, if you look at Onshape, you will never do file management. You will never think about what version of the file do I have unless you want to. And then the system shows you what your branching is and all your file variants and your versions and who's working on what version. It is automatically taken care of in the background for you. You don't think about it. You don't think about saving. You don't think about any of that stuff in a fully blown baked SaaS solution. And it's helpful because it takes a lot of noise out and it takes a lot of risk out. Uh, it is very difficult for, sorry, it's very easy for a single person to know where all their files are and, and know what the version was and what they were working on last. As soon as you add one more person and, and then it starts doubling from there, your, your difficulty of doing that in kind of a homegrown way, not uh, managed by a system grows exponentially along with your doublings of people. So that's, that's a, something to is all of the people that are trying to start a business want to grow. They'll want to not just be a single person shop for a long time because uh, that's, that's actually not a business. That's just, you made yourself a job, which is fine, but it isn't the same thing as having made yourself a business. The growth that you have to anticipate is one of those areas where you have to think about not just how these technologies can help you make or design your product, but how, you, how they can help you actually run your business as it grows. Uh, my wife is a veterinarian. We have a, um, besides my, job with BTC. We have a veterinary practice. We run that entire business on SaaS solutions. It's 50 or 50 odd employees uh, altogether. And we've more than doubled the size of the business in the past couple of years. And we've spent no more time on management activities than we did before that. And it's entirely because we're able to take all of those SaaS solutions in a relatively low cost way 
and uh, use them effectively for everything from accounting to human resources to payroll and, and more. And that means all of the medical business, all of the medical side of the business, all of the practice management and medical records and is all run on the SaaS solution, which yeah, you, we, we can be away at a conference and the office can call in and say there's a problem and we can fix it on a tablet while, while we're in a lecture at a conference. It, it's very powerful compared to having what the opposite of SaaS is on-premises, or a lot of people call it on-prem, that that kind of solution is still by far dominant in large industrial companies. I mean, 80, 90% are still on-premises. It's going to change to SaaS, and again, I think accelerated by COVID sooner than it other would otherwise would have. It's. Do you think that, that starting out as a company that focuses on building infrastructure on SaaS gives a significant competitive advantage to the little guys who are starting up trying to break into these industries that might be dominated by bigger industrial players? Are they trying to break in by writing a SaaS application or are they trying to break in by Sorry, taking yeah, advantage let me, of Sorry, let me them? clarify. Taking advantage of SaaS. So I, I'll, 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 I'll also note here, thank you for that comment. As entrepreneurs, we always hear, hey, build SaaS applications. Don't build anything that has to be local. It's, it's not the way to do it. It's not scalable. Subscription fees are the way to go. But you very rarely hear, hey, with your chief operating officer hat on, hey, you should also build your company's infrastructure on SaaS, yes. um, not just with yeah. the business model. Yeah. Um, yes, it will help uh, for, for a new person starting up to fundamentally not expect to have, well, there's two things that happen when people do things on-premises. One, they have the on-premises overhead that goes with it, and there's a perceived degree of control and security that comes with that, which I do not think is justification for the, the pain that comes along too. And there's also a tendency towards do-it-yourself or build-it-yourself that happens. The number one tool used for engineering in the world is Excel because people have built so many things that they do in Excel uh, around the world, whether it's for supply, and you can, you know, design is a wide ranging topic there. That could be everything from figuring out who your suppliers are gonna be to a make buy decision, to actually doing some engineering calculations that you then put into CAD, <laughs> rather than using tools that exist that are linked to your CAD. <laughs> uh, you know, Excel can be linked to, to Creo, yeah, then probably to other tools too, uh, to drive your calculations, but people have, a do-it-yourself mindset. You know, there's a lack of reuse is a general human trait <laughs> that people often want to find things on their own. The more often you can find a solution already solved or ask the question of who's already solved this problem for me, especially when that thing you're trying to solve isn't core to the business you're trying to run, but it's something you just need to get done on the way to your business succeeding, then you need to ask who else has solved this problem. And you need to find someone who solved it in a way that you can deliver without building yourself on site. I think we need to make t-shirts, uh, culture of SAS. To, uh, <laughs> I think that that's probably the, 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 the product idea takeaway from this, from this conversation. Um, very cool. So that, that, is, that is such a great insight for people listening. How do you build a culture of thinking about build, using existing SaaS products that we can access our information, our infrastructure from anywhere at any time um, for much lower cost than doing it yourself, but having it on-premises? With that, I'd love to transition away from our digital transformation conversation and focus in on some of the things that you work on as an entrepreneur and in your outside of PTC life. Obviously, I imagine using the digital transformation principles that, that you know it, love and aren't an expert in. 
Um, could you could you share some light on on your experiences with first robotics? So so first robotics for people who don't know, and I wanted to talk on first first robotics first because that was funny um, because because it's an excellent example of training digital transformation and training the next generation of innovators. So could you tell us what first robotics is, what your role is there? Sure. Um, so first robotics was started by Dean Kamen 25 or so years ago in New Hampshire. Uh, Dean Kamen, for those who don't know him, is the founder of DECA Research, which has made many, many innovative products. He, he himself invented the first uh, portable dialysis machine. Uh, there's a lot and a lot has a long history is one is in um, my pantheon of engineering uh, folks heroes and folks that I look up to uh, his, uh, all around fantastic approach with first was to try its core objective which has really never changed is to make science technology engineering and math as exciting as compelling as a field of study as entertainment and sports are and, and that's a in the US for example and it's really, it is a, there is a first global, so this is by no means just a U.S.-based operation, although it did start there. Uh, but that idea that culturally in the U.S., and I think in many places around the world, everyone wants to go pro in a sport or become the next you know, blockbusting entertainer or movie star. And FIRST seeks to have, be, have students, kids realize that they can be every bit as exciting, every bit as compelling, every bit as challenged, more fulfilling, to have that sort of career in science, technology, engineering, math, or STEM, then, and by the way, much more likely to go pro <laughs> in that sort of activity than than in the other ones. So it's uh, it's not a it's not a competitive problem. In fact, mo we have very many in in first, very many entertainers, <laughs> very many sports figures are are uh, big supporters of first. So it's it's trying to get that that culture change in place because the U.S as an example, uh, is on a path right now with, it, with our population of 350 million to graduate far fewer engineers than Iran or Russia in the next few years, which have much wow. smaller populations than the U.S. And yeah. you know, we're, I believe, we're already behind China and India, but they have a billion people each, so proportionally you can work that out. Uh, the, the fact that two countries with much smaller populations have succeeded in getting the cultural emphasis on on STEM that we have not is a huge problem from a point of view of the U.S. industrial competitiveness. Yeah, and, and national security a, too. I would imagine it is. Um, it very that's super interesting. I did not know that the things I, I you learned, learned that very very recently. I was looking at some data on that. That's crazy. I'm reading a book right now called The Kill Chain by. Uh, I'm blanking up Christian Bros, I believe his name is, and it really focuses on our competition with with China from a you know they are much more advanced technologically than we are in ways that can defeat our behemoth technologies like the f thirty five um or big nuclear big nuclear battleships, for example. But I have not even thought about hey, hey, Iran might be actually graduating more engineers than the United States, and that's another th another threat to national security that could be a interesting issue. I can't remember. Um, it was it was it was a short number. It was a single digit number of years. If you projected out in the future, yeah. that would happen. It was close. Wow, that's crazy. We'll we'll, we'll definitely take a look and put that in the uh, show notes for people to to read a little bit more about because I think that's really so, important. Okay, so back to first robotics. Um. So yeah, so you were describing how first came to be, and I'd love to learn kind of 
how you got involved and what, sure. what you try to do and, and what the network, because there's not just first as an organization, there's the students who participate, there's mentors, et cetera. It's a, it's a huge, hundreds of thousands of people worldwide are, are involved in first. It's, it's a tremendous uh, success that Dean's pulled off. I, I got involved because one, uh, DECA uses some of PTC's products for their, their projects. So I knew about DECA from that. Uh, Dean, came is... to talk, uh, Dean came, D-E-K-A, Dean Kamen. It's Dean's uh, design engineering company based in Manchester, New Hampshire. I used to live in New Hampshire uh, before I uh, moved to Illinois where I live now. So uh, Dean came to PTC and talked to some of our groups a few times. So I had connections from that angle through work and then just started volunteering with teams. Uh, if you were within the sound of this, of this podcast and you have not, and you care about STEM and you care about kids learning and becoming interested in STEM and, and finding a career they can go pro in and have an unbelievably successful and fulfilling job life, you should go research first. Uh, you should go look at how unbelievably low the barrier to entry is to get a team started, to join a team as a mentor. Uh, this is not something that you have to have a degree in engineering to support. They're uh, part of the magic of first is how well it replicates what your real life will be like when you're in a job. And one of the things that we always talk to the kids about is there's never enough time, money, or information. And, and that's in the first teams, there's never enough time, money, or information to, to meet the challenges and the, and the things that we're set to work on. And that's how life is too. You have to find ways to become elastic. You have to find ways to work within the budget or get people to join on your team. And many of the skills that we try to impart to the kids in, in first have nothing to do with design or engineering. Now, certainly there's a, a heavy focus on that for the robotics design. And this, there's three levels in first. It works everywhere from kids age four, six up through high school. And uh, in each of the levels, you start with Lego Mindstorm kits and they have a challenge that season's actually active right now. Uh, my son's in an FLL team. My daughter was, but then decided she didn't like it. Um, it is, I keep trying to get her to get back into it, but she, she, it's just not the thing that she seems to want to work on. So, okay, I'll just keep trying and she'll keep saying no. Uh, my son's uh, working on the on a Lego Mindstorm team. Uh, there's also, a, uh, the next level is called FTC, or First Tech Challenge. That's a team that runs from eighth grade through high school, might be seventh grade through high school, I forget exactly. Uh, and then there's FRC, or First Robotics Competition, which is just high school the complexity, the budget, the team size, the logistics all go up as you go through those levels. Um, you can run an FLL team on a few hundred bucks, yeah, less than a thousand for sure. And everything's local and it's done in a day. You can go to FTC team, you might travel a little bit further, you need a few thousand bucks to run the team uh, and it's limited to 10. An FRC team, if this kind of a big step up in budget, if you go to a couple of regionals or, or you're in a district and you go to your district competitions and you make it to Worlds, and you have 25 or 30 or more people on your team, you can easily spend $20,000 a year. You know, a bunch of that's travel. Uh, you know, now this year travel's a little different. Uh, you know, a lot of the team leagues that are going right now are all gonna do virtual competitions and videos, and, but normally it's in-person competitions. And they're, um, they're super, they're as exciting as a sports event. For an adult, for the kids, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, you can, at, at world championships, you can have 15,000 people uh, filling up a football uh, part of a football stadium and uh, the competition in six eight hundred teams competing from around the world. Uh, 
teams, uh, my, my little farming community where we started a team in central Illinois, uh, competed against teams from Australia, Turkey, Israel. Uh, and it's and that was here in the states. Those teams traveled to the states to to be in in competitions. And then there's world competitions where everybody gets together. There's also First Global, which has events all around the world that are unique from the World Championship Games to try to drive up global uh, interest in STEM. What is it about this model in particular that? I've seen in my at my school when I was a kid. They they attempted to have some sort of engineering club or or engineering, you know, local competition that that to, to I I loved it, but to engage a large population, there ended up only being five out of say six hundred kids from the school um, who would like to participate or who willingly participated. What is it about this model that you think is so engaging for kids, and how how can it apply to to other kind of Digital, man, digital transformation training, innovation training, um, models, competitions, et cetera. Okay, it's inherently gamified. You know, this, it's all, everything you're learning and doing is built around competing and winning. And that is a natural human tendency to, to be engaging. Uh, at the same time, and this is part of their marketing and Dean will say this all the time, it's not about the robot. You know, it isn't using kids to build robots, it's using robots to build kids. I'm stealing Dean's line there. That, I love that so much. <laughs> that's what he'll say. And he, and it's it's very sincere. It's very heartfelt uh, to the point where you know things happen in first rules that people get up in arms about because it's emphasizing that over the pure competition part of it. And it, it's uh yeah, it's very it's been very consistent from the outset, even where it's caused some controversy. This is uh the and the kids are engaged. Yeah, this is uh, not something that it's too, it's too much work. It's too much the hardest work you'll ever have kind of analogy. Uh, it, nobody would do it if it wasn't fun and engaging because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of attention. You have to actually be pretty dedicated to it and applied to be able to make the progress that you need. It is uh, in the sense of it's not just about the robots. That's the, the in FRC, the, the kind of the top tier league in terms of budget and complexity the top competition isn't the top prize isn't winning the robot competition. It's something called the chairman's award, which is entirely about how you've been able to over the course of many years show influence in increasing the prevalence of STEM activity in and around where you live or as globally as you can get. So that that's actually the top thing. And kids go crazy when they win on the Einstein field in FRC, which is the, the finals final field. Uh, absolutely insane how happy they are. Kids cry when they win uh, the chairman's award at Worlds. It's it's the it's the the ethos and the culture around how important that is and how hard it is to do is uh, something that's been very well ingrained from the very beginning and first. Something else we've talked about offline when it comes to first and this type of education is the concept of STEAM versus STEM. STEAM being science, technology, engineering, art and math versus just science, technology, engineering, and math. Could you shed some light on your thoughts there and how that sure. plays into the FIRST Robotics uh, ecosystem? I, I was having a conversation uh, with the CEO of Back to Space a few weeks ago, and one of the, we were talking about this topic, and he made, he made a good observation that I'll repeat on his behalf, uh, which is, you know, if you get to STEAM, isn't that just school? Isn't that everything? <laughs> 
<laughs> because, and in a sense, yeah, uh, you know, because arts is very wide ranging. So, and so, does that mean steam is important? Of course, steam is important. Um, but, it, but I'm not sure what you aren't doing at the point when you're talking about steam. What, what have you left out? At that point, it's just a fully well-rounded uh, liberal education in the, in the sense of liberal education used to mean, not connected to anything political. Uh, you know, well-rounded, uh, covering all the aspects. So you've got philosophy. You can have, you know, actually, you know, fine arts. You can have uh, all of the science, technology, engineering, and math that you want in there. And you've got it all in that bundle. So, yeah, huge supporter of STEAM. I'm an advisor to a small company in Connecticut uh, that uh, does STEM and STEAM uh, extra active, extra learning, you know, supports schools in their STEAM programs, helps do their STEAM programs for them, provides extra mentoring and tutoring outside. They have uh, a very heavy STEM focus and a little bit of A uh, because it, they basically have, the, we have the same idea. If we, if we would, we haven't never uh, articulated the, the way I just heard from the, from the CEO, but there's a limit to what you can try to cover. If you if you do steam, you the the door is wide open. You can put anything into that bucket. Uh, so none, that's not in any way to be disparaging of it. I do actually support the idea that it's all important because if you and you can't actually run a first team without some aspects of the A. It's actually you you can't communicate, you can't fundraise, you can't market yourself, you can't do your project management. Those aren't those aren't engineering skills. Uh, but you have to have them. So there's a there's an aspect of STEAM that fits in first, and it's appropriate, and I love it. And that, that's why I was saying before, you do not need an engineering degree to volunteer to be on a first team. All of those things need help, and all of those things can benefit from a wide range of mentors and skill sets and backgrounds. So uh, reinforce that. If you're thinking about helping a first team, go to First Inspires uh, online and uh, look up teams in your area, start a team in your area, join the team and learn how to run a team, then start a team. <laughs> There's all sorts of opportunity and you will, you will absolutely use aspects of steam in a STEM focus all the time because it's, you know, one, you know what's the knock on engineers from, they can't write, they can't communicate <laughs> this historical knock on engineers. I mean, I'm weird because I always did better on English than in verbal than I did in math and standardized tests as an engineer, but so be it. Yeah, maybe that helps with my perspective or, or changes my perspective on regular engineering. So I feel like the A is important, but you, if you're going to focus on STEM, you can't do all of A. Otherwise, you're literally doing all of education. Something that comes to mind on that, on that point, bringing it back to the digital transformation thread, is the emergence of what I like to call designers or or. I don't, I don't know what else I would call it, but this, the, the, the concept that we now have designers who are not just clothing designers or fashion designers, but you have an engineer who is a designer of our augmented reality experiences, who is a designer of, of uh, I'm trying to, to think of what, what this thread is. There's something there around thinking the about the, design. Uh, the end yeah. user experience. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Where it's not just this engineer off in a silo somewhere, but you're actually focused on what is actually, it's kind of more purposeful engineering. And maybe we need a new word for what an engineer really is. And I'm building on the design thread and the purposeful engineering thread. I, the uh, design thinking is one um, industry term that's it's a little bit related to what you're describing. Yeah. And it's got a, mm -hmm. a, there's a bunch of other names that are similar to that. Mm -hmm. but, you know, starting with that idea of what kind of experience do we want the user of this product to have? 
and you can you can make that end to end as wide as you want from the time they learned about it in marketing through the selling experience the buying experience if it's software how they download it if it's a product how they get it shipped to them or buy it themselves to actual use to service to retirement you can think about that whole lifespan and say what do we want them to feel like if you mm -hmm. think about amazon i don't even know how to call help at amazon i have no idea how to how to call for support at amazon i've never needed it and that didn't happen by accident they designed mm -hmm. their experience around the way you engage with their software so you can get the products you're buying in a way that would emphasize that the lack of need for help yeah this is such an important concept that that maybe we'll have to have you back on or we'll have to find out how to sure. get um, <laughs> we'll have to find out how to grab some I, I know folks that are more expert in, wanna... in, in design thinking than me if you want to talk about that <laughs> yeah we'll have to we'll have to bring someone on just to dive into hey what does it mean to be a design a designer um, who was really focused on tech and also really focused on uh, on on artfully building their tech. Another area that, that I want to kind of close out exploring on this podcast, I love to understand how different entrepreneurs, industrialists, innovators, folks who like to build things, um, structure different parts of their life uh, and create the time, create the capital, create the space, um, create the bandwidth to to actually build things. And And every entrepreneur does it a little bit differently. Some folks dive into it as their full-time gig. Some, some people have a side hustle. Some people just straight up are, are wizards at partitioning their time to work on more than one project. Um, and to me, you are one of those wizards who partitions their time to, to wear so many different hats. So I, I'd love for you to first tell us about what I, what I perceive as being kind of your main, your main partition away from PTC um, with your veterinarian clinic um, please correct me if I'm wrong. And there's and there's other things that fall in, into you there's, know your there's main. There's a couple that are about equal yeah. after PTC. <laughs> yeah. So if you could just elaborate on what those are, and then I'd love sure. to dissect kind of how you decided to structure to structure your career that way. So on the veterinary side, the 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 big benefit I have is that my wife's the smart one. She's has an, we met in engineering school, then she got a vet degree and then an MBA, and so she's not only a veterinarian, but also running most of the business side of that practice. So my, I'm in a consultative role in, in that, and I you know, mechanically help when things break. <laughs> so much more of a line worker job for me in, in that regard. Uh, but yeah, we did a multi-million dollar expansion of a facility. So a lot of the construction planning on that I helped out with because I have a lot of background in that. And that and it takes a certain amount of time, but it's it's uh, – most of my time there is focused with my wife looking at strategy and, and long-term planning and growth trajectory planning and how to apply some of these digital transformation technologies to the veterinary industry, which is sorely needing them. Uh, and in some ways is constrained by law where, you know, for example, telemedicine, there are certain things you simply are not allowed to do in the veterinary practice, in the veterinary practice law that in human medicine you can. In some ways, the tech, in, in lots of ways, the technology is there already to in fact we've already implemented things that would support it but in ways we're gated by that so it becomes a whole legal advocacy lobbying discussion about trying to get the law changed to be able to support new ways of doing business bringing a subscription mindset into veterinary practice it's not a technology problem it's a this is a human 
uh, adoption problem. A human, you know, do, do the clients want this? Do they understand why it's good for them? Is it actually, in fact, good for the clients? Can you come up with something that is actually a valuable and benefit for them, not just a, a change of your business model? It has to be authentic. If it is, if you're, if you want to move your veterinary business or any business from a asset-based sale to a subscription sale, you can't. People are smart. People will know <laughs> if you're doing this just to try to milk more money out of them over time. Uh, there has to be something that's actually authentically beneficial for the for the for your clients in that transition. Uh, PTC made a transition from a one-time perpetual license sale to an asset business, and it's been very very successful because there were things in it that were beneficial for the clients. It wouldn't. It's not the sort of thing you can force because, especially in the very industry, if we were trying to force subscription onto clients. 100% of the rest of the veterinarians aren't doing that right now, almost 100, not really. There's a few that are trying, and there's a few examples of where it's been a little bit successful. Um, yeah, but bringing technology onto the animals themselves. We've been involved in a couple different pilot projects with with startups doing said pit bit, uh, pet bit kind of style things to uh, not just monitor health like we do mostly for people, but really when, when an animal's in recovery or in a treatment program, is it recovering the way it should? Is it getting the exercise it should? Is it following its treatment regimen? Uh, neither of those have actually succeeded in becoming products, but we've worked as partners with two different joint ventures there. Uh, it was good learning. We'll maybe be able to find a third one that can actually bring it to fruition. So we still keep playing with that. Um, so uh, yeah, a lot of the angles that I take and what I learned from the, the PTC job, I bring over into that business. Um, on another side, uh, effort I have that's uh, still very small. It's, I guess you could call it a startup, but it's very, very early. Uh, well, pre-seed is uh, a company that's looking into how we can forecast earthquakes. Uh, so it was actually started as part of an XPRIZE competition, uh, submitting for disaster resilience. And we didn't actually end up winning the, the prize submission, but because of that, it formed a group of people around me and uh, have some science that works in the lab. We need to be able to do a pilot project to prove it at regional scale. A regional pilot project for earthquake forecasting is needs 100,000 square kilometers in a few years. It isn't something you run over a weekend with a you know just a little kit on the side. <laughs> so we're assembling the uh, space-based, ground-based, air-based kinds of sensor data. This is, here's a, tie this back to SAS and, and finding people that have already answered the question that you need solved. If we want to forecast earthquakes, Everything I need to do other than generating a forecast about an accurate forecast about when it's going to happen, where is it going to happen, and how high, how much magnitude is it going to happen at, everything else is a distraction to that. If I need to design a sensor array because I need to learn uh, magnetomic fluxes in a certain area to a certain precision at a certain frequency, that's necessary to get to the outcome, but it's a distraction. If someone else has already done that, particularly if it's available as a database I can connect to over IoT and SAS, I'm just going to tap into that. I'm not going to let myself go do the DIY trap and uh, figure it because I think I can build a better sensor array. Nope, I'm going to use what's there. And maybe down the road, I realize that that one's not good enough, but it got us closer because we could get 100 times better at earthquake forecasting than we are now, and it would still not be very good. It would still not be good enough because uh, earthquake forecasting has is abysmal. It is uh, almost, it's embarrassingly bad as a species, which is one of the reasons I got very excited about trying to pursue our improvement on that. A few other, With, uh, yeah. Go, yeah, ahead. go for it. No, please go for it. Now, there's a few other things I do as volunteer on the side that uh, are managing time. The first, I have two first teams that I mentor. 
and uh, one of them meets at a yeah we have a, I have a place in my house where I'm able to set up a practice field so we the whole team meets and builds the robot there. Uh, then uh, Defy Ventures is another group that I volunteer with, uh, which is teaching entrepreneurship to people who have been arrested, people who are going through incarceration and trying to get them to graduate through a program of learning entrepreneurship so they will start their own business uh, when they come out. It's you know, entirely focused on not only increasing, entirely focused on two things, increasing entrepreneurship and decreasing recidivism. And uh, that's a group I've been involved with, not as much as, not for, not for very long, not for as long as I wish I had. Uh, they've done some reorganization recently, so done some coaching with individuals. Uh, it's, it's focused it can be a technology that one of the main things is it needs to become cash positive quickly for the people because the idea is as soon as you can get someone seeing that they can generate money from legal legitimate means, it's dramatically going to re decrease recidivism. So there's a, a certain focus you have to have when you're giving that kind of coaching versus talking about what, what would it mean to raise to raise capital for a for a company that's trying to forecast earthquakes that might not generate any cash for a year. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's a very different discussions you can have. I love that. We'll link down to that in the in the show notes. I think I was looking into that program when I was doing my prep for this interview, and it seems seems like a phenomenal program. Like just the the precise um, individual empowerment American ethos type of program that we need to to help you know fix some of the problems we're seeing with the prison system and all these things that are happening in the world. Um, but I'll table that again for another time and, and offline. Um, One other group very, I volunteer yeah. with, since we're talking about volunteering and how I partition my time, it's uh, CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate. It's another child-oriented uh, group for kids that are, quote-unquote, in the system in the U.S. for either being victims of abuse or neglect. Uh, and I'm a officer in that program. You become an officer of the court, and your, your job is to look out for the best interests of the kid. They have, you know, the parents have representation. The uh, step parents have representation. Every every group that shows up in court over one of those cases has representation. The kids will have what's called a guardian ad litem, uh, which is a legal representation for the duration of the litigation. But they're not actually look. They're not actually going to talk to the kid and interview the kid. They're just there to represent their rights in court when they have when they have a question to be answered. Uh, the the casa is someone that's actually going to look after the kid, trying to help them reunite with primary goal, reunite with their family in a way that's healthy and safe. And uh, if they need uh, to move into foster care for a period of time, that's one of the sorts of recommendations we can uh, not exactly directly make, but, but uh, participate in that process. That's a, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on kid oriented activities and that's, that's one of them. And we're big supporters of St. Jude. <laughs> I know that we have a lot of, of, of really good people who, who look for volunteer opportunities like this all the time in the, uh, in the audience. So, so hopefully this, this provides some color. Any for of these, any of these three would be highly recommended by me for, to take a look into and do your own research. Amazing. So, so we are coming up just at the end of, of our time together, Keith, I am really, really appreciative of, of, of your time and, and of our relationship uh, and the incredible work you're doing and for the digital transformation world and moving us through the mechanism of PTC into a really incredible, exciting future where you can make anything at any time, anywhere, uh, just by thinking it, let's say. So well, we thank to talk, you so we didn't much talk for about brain-computer interface yet. We didn't talk about quantum oh, yeah. computing. <laughs> and we didn't talk about using AR to do design. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess 
didn't talk about spatial computing and how you can track people and use that people. There's a lot of things we could talk about. <laughs> well, yeah, I know this, this, the hour we had together flew by. And if you have more time, I'd love to have you back on and we can do a part two and dive into how all these technologies are converging and, and how people can take advantage uh, and Maybe play in these spaces. Maybe there'll be questions that come from people who listen to this one and we can follow where the audience wants us to go. Of course, we can do a little SaaS uh, customer feedback. Sure. Um, so thank you so much. Before we end, do you have any, any requests to the audience? Where can people find you? How can people follow you? And you sure. mentioned some links throughout. How can people get involved with some of the things that you're passionate about? Sure. So uh, LinkedIn is, is the place I will direct people to find me. It's just Keith Gargiulo. And uh, I believe there's only one of me. <laughs> uh, look forward to connecting with people. I, I enjoy hearing uh, from people from very diverse walks of life and backgrounds. Uh, anyone, if you've got questions about follow-up on this, I yeah, through, through LinkedIn, just send me a message and we'll connect that way. Uh, all of the First, first is first inspires. Defy is Defy Ventures. Casa's uh, Casa.org. I believe that's the right website. We'll have to search that. We'll put uh, that all the show, the show notes, notes too. We put yep. in. Uh, and all, all three of those are things I, I definitely enjoy spending my time with on, and uh, I get a lot of personal benefit from uh, from the time spent, as well as I hope helping the people I'm working with. Very cool. Well, Keith, we're very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Max. Uh, I thank appreciate the invitation. Of course. And thanks everyone for listening to the show. Bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.